0: Welcome to Helix Talk, a podcast presented by the Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. We're hoping that our real-life clinical pearls and discussions will help you stay up-to-date and improve your pharmacy knowledge. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be
1: used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider.
0: And now, on to the show.
2: Welcome to episode 35 of Helix Talk. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Sherman.
0: And I'm Dr. Patel.
2: And today we're talking about two updates regarding diabetes therapy.
0: And one of the updates, it's not only an update to a new medication. Um, we're talking about the same old, um, our friend, empagliflozin, the brand name is Jardiance. We do know there are other two SGLT2 inhibitors out in the market, too. Canagliflozin brand name is Okana. And the Pablofilzin Brandimus Farsiga. And uh, these were covered in detail in episode 16, but we are covering Pablofilzin once again because of the new trial, MPALREG outcome trial results that were published just very recently.
2: And just to give background, again, episode sixteen we did cover these SGLT two inhibitors, but essentially they way, the way that they work is they make you urinate out more glucose, so it decreases the threshold for when the kidney reabsorbs glucose, and that has some effects in terms of vital signs, some lab values, and things like that.
1: And then we had mentioned there was, you know, some some things to be concerned about was a potential increased risk in urinary tract infections because again bringing all that sugar through the uh, ureters, and, you know, that, that can be problematic for outcomes so it will remain to be seen how big of a problem that continues to be.
2: And when we're thinking about urinating glucose, some good things and some bad things happen. You mentioned a couple bad things. Some of the good things are that because you're losing calories by peeing out calories, you can actually see a decrease in weight both from uh, loss of water but also loss of, you know, energy or calories. And oftentimes that also translates to a decrease in your blood pressure without really changing your heart rate.
0: Right. And and they're talking about just surrogate endpoint reduction. Again, they've seen some favorable effects on vascular parameter, looking at the arterial stiffness, vascular resistance, visceral adiposity, albinuria, and plasma urate. But that being said, these agents currently do not have any microvascular benefits proven.
2: And then in terms of other surrogate endpoints that have been looked at, uh, it does appear that these SGLT2 inhibitors can increase your LDL and HDL. So uh, really from a surrogate endpoint point of view, no one really knows what to think of these agents because, you know, increasing LDL must be bad, but increasing HDL should be good, and then we have all of these endpoints related to uh, vasculature and things like that. So. Uh, when in doubt with surrogate endpoints, the gold standard to figure it out is to do a clinical trial, and that's exactly what happened with the empa outcome trial.
0: Right, and we discussed in previous podcasts as well that now FDA requires any new anti-diabetic medication to perform cardiovascular outcome study, and so empa was a particular study that was done for impotlethose proving these cardiovascular outcomes.
2: And Dr. Patel, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine this requirement by the FDA is partially due to the TZDs or thiazolidine dione um, outcomes that we've had in the past where there was a question of increased risk of MIs or not, and heart failure and things like that. And that's kind of what has prompted some of this request from the FDA.
0: That is true. That was the biggest lesson learned um, with rosiglitazone, as we know. Currently, it's on a REMS regulation. Um, When FDA did put that regulation of performing a cardiovascular trial, um, people were not really happy about it. Other countries thought that FDA was unnecessarily certainly being too strict about it, but now we saw this big example of rosyglitazone, and I think it's our moral and ethical responsibility to make sure that we're also assessing cardiovascular benefits or harm as well.
1: Certainly. So when we, when we look at the study design, it included... A little over 7,000, about 7,020 patients with type 2 diabetes, and these patients specifically had to have a high risk of cardiovascular disease. So that was a history of coronary artery disease, history of MI, history of cerebrovascular accidents, history of peripheral artery disease, as well as an A1C, specifically 7 to 9 percent without
2: medications, or if they're on medications, anywhere between 7 and 10 percent. So essentially, this is a very large trial that was recently published that included a lot of different kinds of patients, but specifically, we're looking at those who are at very high risk for cardiovascular disease. And it turns out that if you've had some ASCVD in the past, that's one of the biggest predictors to get new ASCVD in the future. So they're really looking at a high-risk group. So this isn't your 35-year-old diabetic who's never had any problems in the past. And also, they're looking at fairly well-controlled diabetics, anywhere from an A1C of 7 to 10%, as we'll talk about the A1Cs, we're actually fairly reasonable as a mean. So, um, we're looking at pretty well controlled type 2 diabetics who definitely have a history of ASCBD.
0: Correct. And the procedure of the study was there. There was a two-week open-label lab- placebo run-in period. Um, patients in this study were also on other antidiabetic medications, including insulin. But during this run-in period, um, those background therapies or concomitant antidiabetic therapies were not changed.
1: So they could be on whatever they were on previously when they came into the study, so long as they met that A1C goal.
0: Correct. And then they were randomized between either placebo Empagliflozin, ten milligram daily or twenty-five milligram daily. So they were looking at three different groups here.
2: And again, the brand name of empagliflozin is Jardiance, right? That is correct. Got
0: it. Okay, so they
2: randomized them. What kind of endpoints were they looking at in the trial? On this one, the primary endpoints again being as we were looking for
1: cardiovascular disease. So we're looking at the composite of death from cardiovascular causes, myocardial infarction, or even stroke. And
0: And secondary outcome was um, looking at the primary outcome as well as looking at hospitalization for unstable angina.
1: And then we had some safety analyses that we were doing too. So they looked for adverse drug reactions that occurred during treatment or even within seven days after the last
2: dose of the study drug. And when they designed the trial, it was actually a non-inferiority as the primary analysis, meaning that they're trying to show non-inferiority to placebo, which, as we've kind of talked about in the past, is kind of hysterical that we're treating diabetes in order to prevent these adverse outcomes. But then the FDA is requiring a safety analysis to show that your drug doesn't cause more harm than placebo.
0: Absolutely. And then uh, this study in particular not only had a non-inferiority to the primary outcome or for for primary outcome, they also looked at the non-inferiority to the secondary outcome as well as superiority to both the primary and secondary outcome.
2: And honestly, from my point of view, it really should be a superiority study that the FDA should require. Um, although I do understand with, you know, a lot of different diabetic medications, it's very expensive for every single medication to show a cardiovascular benefit. And in reality, many, almost all the medications for diabetes haven't shown a cardiovascular benefit. So it would absolutely raise the bar and make it more difficult for new agents to come to market. So there's some balance there. So in this case, it's nice to see that they did do a non-inferiority plus a superiority analysis, which is clinically what I'd like to see. So thinking about the kinds of patients that were included in the trial, they were in their mid-60s. Almost three-quarters of them were male. Mostly were white, uh, 20% Asian, about 20% Hispanic. Mostly were European. This was actually only about 20% from North America. And most of these patients would be considered overweight, so the BMI was around 30. Their A1C was actually pretty well controlled, around 8%. And as we said, all of these patients had to have some history of ASCVD. So... The majority had coronary artery disease about 75 percent about half of them had a history of heart attack about a quarter had a history of cabbage about a quarter of them had a history of stroke so really this emphasizes that this is not your typical 38 year old diabetic patient this is someone in their mid 60s who's had diabetes for a while and in fact about just about 50 percent of the patients in the trial had had diabetes for more than 10 years
0: and as we mentioned, you know, these patients were on concomitant other anti-diabetic medications, but when we were talking about improving cardiovascular benefits or not causing any harm. We want to make sure that these patients who already had cardiovascular risk were on other proper therapies. So like talking about proper dosing of statins, proper dosing of ACE inhibitors or ARBs or other medications like metoprolol that they qualified for it. And these patients were allowed to be on those medications as well.
2: So in looking at the primary endpoint, what kind of uh, efficacy did we see in the trial? Well, what they found was the cardiovascular death, the
1: non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, it was reduced versus placebo 12.1% with empagliflozin versus 10.5% with empagliflozin versus 12.1% with placebo, and that reached a p-value of 0.04, so significant for superiority with the number needed to treat to see one significant change of 63 And that was a median duration of 2.6 years of therapy. So again, that's
2: pretty long to, you know, make sure somebody's consistently on it. But yeah, we did see some benefit there. And if if we look at things like statin trials and things like that, oftentimes they even have a longer period than 2.6 years as a mean. Some are closer to five years. So in thinking about a number needed to treat in the 60s uh, to decrease this composite endpoint of clinically relevant parameters, that's a pretty good number, you know, all things considered when you compare it uh, to other therapies that we have
0: and one good thing about what i like about um, this article in particular on the nejm website is that they have um you know indicated a lot of things that are now part of the uh, appendix so you won't be able to see the charts and background information unless you pull up the appendix so the appendix has table s6 and it kind of talks about the secondary endpoints as well so secondary endpoints were looking at the primary endpoint plus looking at hospitalization for unstable angina or CHF. And what they found was that this endpoint was um, occurring by 12.8% in impaglifosin, either the 10 milligram or 25 milligram group, versus 14.3% in the placebo group. And again, this was statistically significant for the non-inferiority criteria. So the p-value was less than um, 001. However, for superiority, the p-value was 0.08%, which is still good. Um, And then,
2: as you said, they picked specific endpoints that were part of their composite primary endpoint. And the big one was a lower all-cause mortality, lower cardiovascular death, uh, lower hospitalizations for heart failure. So all of those are really, really relevant endpoints for what we're interested in. It would have been one thing to have the composite endpoint, which sometimes can be inflated if you have kind of lesser endpoints that you kind of combine with a big endpoint like mortality. But in this case, in addition to the primary endpoint being significant, we also saw that these secondary endpoints. Uh, individual endpoints like mortality were improved with empagliflozin. That's a really big deal.
1: That's not to say it hit a home run on everything. We, dif- we didn't really find any difference when we were looking at myocardial infarction comparing the drug to placebo, stroke either fatal or non-fatal comparing that active drug versus placebo. So yeah, and so so the one difference there in stroke, interestingly, was with the two different doses of the drug, 3.6 and 3.4%, so really 3.5% on average with the drug versus 3% with
2: placebo, so actually a little bit of a slight increase in stroke there. And This is super interesting because almost always in trials like this, when we have a composite endpoint, usually the main driver is a non-mortality driver, so like a decrease in heart attacks or a decrease in strokes. In this case, it's actually the opposite of what we typically see, where the main driver of the composite was mortality, and it wasn't some of these non-fatal events like MIs and strokes. Uh, So that usually doesn't happen. It's really interesting to kind of figure out, well, why did it happen like that? What was the mechanism of benefit if it wasn't decreasing strokes and heart attacks? Why is it that people didn't die as often? And keep in mind that these were non-fatal MIs that were um, part of the secondary endpoint, so it could have been that it truly decreased fatal MIs that were part of that overall uh, benefit, but still it leaves a couple questions that we want to know more about.
0: Absolutely, and also there were no differences when, it, when they looked at patients having um, transient ischemic attacks or looking at patients hospitalized because of the anginal episodes.
2: So given that this decreases mortality in diabetes, it must have had a profound impact on the surrogate marker of A1C, right?
0: Actually, um, that was quite the opposite. So if they look, if they looked at the 94 week, they looked at the A1C reduction at 94 weeks as well as the two, um, 206th week. And what they found that A1C was reduced by 0.42% in the group versus 0.47% in the placebo group, which is quite the opposite. But we have to also keep in mind that these patients were also on other concomitant antidiabetic medications.
2: So you're saying in the trial itself, Obviously, patients could be on whatever therapies they were on, and those could be titrated independent of the study drug. But the study drug itself had no impact on A1C.
0: Um, pretty much this is what the study is telling us.
2: And that really throws uh, the idea of A1C reduction through a loop a little bit And that we don't see this difference in A1C, yet we see these pretty impressive clinical benefits from the study drug empagliflozin.
0: Right. So it's it's a matter of, you know, when it comes to applying these study results to your patient population, you kind of have to be mindful here. You know, if you're looking at patients with even C of 11 point whatever, or, you know, um, 16 point whatever, probably this drug won't be your first choice because it does not give us that major even reduction that we need. However, if they are already at high risk of cardiovascular condition and, you know, they uh, meet one of those criteria for baseline patient characteristics, Maybe we can apply this medication to reduce their risk of cardiovascular effects.
1: So, I can kind of almost think about it in the way that we don't get a massive, massive A1C lowering from some of our DPP4 inhibitors. However, you know, so you see them kind of as an extension once somebody's been established. And so, maybe here we have an even lower appreciable A1C change. But yes, those, they, it doesn't look like we can just discount that cardiovascular benefit. So, maybe even again, we're, we're, Going to start getting less hung up on some of these surrogate endpoints here and start saying okay this is a medication we're going to add on to your diabetes not necessarily because it's magically going to make those numbers lower but if you look at these long-term outcomes and again i'm almost thinking sometimes individuals on statins you know we're not completely beholden to hitting those magic ldl numbers but you have somebody that's pretty decent control but they're at high risk where we still talk about putting them on a hypothy stat. so i can kind of see those comparisons here absolutely
0: yeah, and then, you know, they looked at two different doses here, 10 milligram versus 25 milligrams. So that becomes a big question. What dose do we put patients on? So if you look at the primary and secondary outcomes, there was actually no difference between the two um, active um, medication group um, patients. And if they looked at the A one C reduction at 12 weeks, they found pretty much no difference. It was 0.54% reduction in 10 milligram group versus 0.6% reduction in 25 milligrams
1: group. So I think another thing to start looking at then is going to be some of the the safety outcomes. Right when we let off here, we talked about that one of the issues with this class of medication had been some of the the urinary tract infections. And so we see here, UTI wasn't really that different between treatment and placebo, really 0.1%, 18.1% versus 18%. But genital infection itself, so using a difference in terms of what we're looking at,
2: a lot more common with treatment, 64 versus 1.8%. And if you actually divide that out by sex or gender, for women, it was 2.6 versus 10% number needed to harm of 14. Or in other words, every 14 patients that take the drug for 2.6 years on average, one will have uh, typically a mycotic fungal kind of infection of the genital area. And then for men, it was 1.5 versus 5% number needed to harm of 29 So those are slightly different numbers than what we've seen in other trials. It could be uh, from a lot of different reasons in terms of how they adjudicated the endpoint or defined the endpoint. And as these trials get larger and larger, some of these endpoints are harder to capture as they were in uh, an earlier trial design. And really one of the questions here is, uh, what is the mechanism of benefit? So clearly it's not an A1C reduction between the two groups that made it that much more superior. Uh, so what is it? Is there some pleiotropic effect that we're not aware of? Is it some of these vascular effects that we're still investigating? Uh, we don't really know for sure, and that's one of the question marks that we we still have about the trial.
0: Right, and some of the experts in the field are speculating that you know this effect might be coming from the diuretic effect of the drug itself. Um, however, there are a couple other studies being conducted for conaglifosin, as well as the CANVAS, as well as DECLARTINE58. Um, so we will have to see what the outcomes of those trials are. Um, people are suspecting that it will be quite similar to the potlifosin outcomes. However, um, they're also recommending not to stop the trial early because, like we mentioned earlier about the stroke, um, when we discussed the stroke outcome that, you know, if we, if we treat them for a longer period of time, uh, we might see that curve for stroke diverging in favor of placebo and not in favor of the active drug.
2: And again, just to kind of reassess the uh, available agents on the market and this requirement by the FDA. This, which showed a mortality benefit, is in stark contrast to the citagliptin trial from the New England Journal of Medicine that was recently published, showing that it was no more harmful than placebo. So the the concept of one trial for one drug class showing no harm versus placebo, and then this trial showing pretty impressive benefit versus placebo, I think that this is going to change our practice a lot in terms of our approach to diabetes management, not from an A1C point of view, but from a reduction of you know bad clinical outcomes with you.
0: Absolutely. And um we I already discussed about the differences between the two doses and they're saying that there is very minor AVNC reduction or blood pressure reduction or even weight reduction that we have seen with the higher dose. So, uh, clinicians are favoring to keep patients on 10 milligram dose. Again, like we mentioned, AVNC reduction is not going to be great, uh, probably nothing compared to placebo. Um, so, here we are just trying to get that extra benefit of cardiovascular outcome, and they're saying 10 milligram dose would just suffice.
2: I Dr. Patel, correct me if I'm wrong, but is there only one other oral medication that has shown clinical benefit? Uh, in terms of a clinical outcome benefit in diabetes?
0: That is correct, and I think you're talking about metformin that has both the microvascular and microvascular outcome benefit.
2: Wouldn't it be great if the manufacturers of Jardiance kind of combined metformin with their product just to make like a super clinical benefit drug? Have I got some
1: news for you guys. Alright, so it looks like Sinjari is now out yet. Right, so we've got that
2: very item. So metformin with empagliflozin combination pill then?
0: Absolutely. And I, th- I don't know, I think the approval of this medication and the publication of this study is, uh, the timing is quite um, comical, but we won't be surprised, you know, once this is placed in practice, obviously based on the other two trials that I mentioned earlier, um, those results are to be coming out in about 2017 for one trial and 2018 for the other trial. So uh, people are really excited to see how this is going to shape up the new diabetes guidelines. Um, But if it does, then like you said, Dr. Schumann, we already have a product in mind, it's a combination of metformin and impaglifosin.
2: Just to point out, in the New England trial of impaglifosin, about three quarters of the patients were on background metformin therapy. So a true evidence-based medicine person would say, well, we want a patient in clinical practice to be as similar as possible to the clinical trial patient population, and that would be true in this case where the majority of the patients were on metformin and then also received empagliflozin on top of that. Whether uh, the benefit is present with or without metformin, we don't really know the answer, but we do know that most of the patients in the trial were receiving metformin, so it's probably still a, a very reasonable recommendation as a first-line therapy for uh, an oral therapy for a diabetic patient. So, and then just
1: to clarify, we're still needing to prove some of those microvascular benefits with this medication. So again, that 1-2 punch of metformin may not necessarily add to the microvascular benefit, but certainly that 1-2 that punch is going to help by providing that benefit.
0: Yeah, and gonagoflozin actually is doing a study to underline, uh, looking at the nephro, nephropathy uh, outcome. So we're hopeful to see what the results of those trials are saying.
2: And given the mechanism of this drug class, it makes sense it would be interested in some of the renal... Uh, adverse effects or benefits of the the drug itself, given that it works in the kidney, deals with receptors in the kidney, it would make sense that you would kind of want to investigate that, both from a saf- safety and an efficacy standpoint.
0: Absolutely.
1: And would be That's interesting
2: too, again, we, we do know some of the kidney issues with metformin as well too, so that may be something, again, just to keep an eye on good or bad. To switch gears a little bit, we wanted to mention another diabetic medication that was recently approved. We already talked about this drug class in episode 16, but we wanted to just mention this new drug that's part of this drug class.
0: Yeah, and the, the brand name of this drug is Trulicity and the generic name is Dilaglutide. Um, and as we know, this is a long-acting uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist, so, so it was approved after the Tansium, which is the Albiglutide, and Exenatide ER, which is the Bydureon, approval.
1: And so this is one, again, it promotes that glucose-dependent insulin secretion by increasing the intracellular cyclic AMP, so activating some of those beta cells. And so, again, you start to get more insulin. It decreases glucagon secretion as well, and then as
2: a nice result, too, slowing down gastric emptying. And for the trivia buffs out there, if you recall, ba- that was actually derived from the saliva of a Gila monster, which is a form of lizard. So it's kind of neat to uh, see that from inception of Bieta, all of these different drug molecules that have been approved to the market. And now we're even kind of playing around with the kinetic profile to allow it to be weekly or even uh, less often than that injections for the patient.
0: So the dosing of this medication, like I mentioned, it's a long-acting medication. So once a week, um, any time of the day, with or without food, it's okay. Most patients are started with 0.75 milligram dose. And then if need be, it can be increased to 1.5 milligrams. Because it's a one-week duration, you know, the half-life is about five days. They say that if you miss the dose, you can take it within 72 hours. But then if, you know, it's, more than, it's been more than 72 hours, then they say, um, just wait for the next dose and don't double it up.
1: And again, looking at populations and adjusting amongst, po- amongst them, this one doesn't seem to have any kind of renal or hepatic dose adjustments or really any kind of special populations that we need to look for. However, there were more ADRs in patients who have renal impairment or renal failure, so you do want to keep aware of that, and it's not really recommended in pregnancy and lactation. And then the last thing is if somebody is on a concomitant secretagogue, so again, if they're on a sulfonylurea, for example, or if they're on insulin, you probably do want to decrease the dose of those agents, again, so we're not just getting an overall bigger effect on
2: maybe leading to hypoglycemia. These precautions are pretty similar to what we saw with our other GLP-1 agonists in that you get more nausea and GI adverse effects because the drug half-life is longer if you have renal impairment, and also it will decrease your insulin requirements, whether it's from sulfonylurea or from insulin itself, that you may need an adjustment on that. Absolutely.
0: And in, um, subcutaneous injection is uh, required in the either abdomen, thigh, or upper arm area. This has two different formulations available, pre filled syringes as well as the pen. Syringes obviously would expose the needle, but the pens are a pretty neat formulation from what I've seen in the clinic, um, the samples that the reps have provided to me. It's basically a needleless system. It has needle inside the device itself, but it's not visible to the patient. Um, once it goes in or once it retracts itself, you never really get to see the needle itself so somebody has a that visible needle phobia this medication is really good the second factor is the reconstitution uh, when we reviewed uh, tansium tanzium in uh, Durian, we made sure that you understand how important all these steps are in reconstitution and you know properly mixing the medication and waiting for so long of a period Trilicity, take it out of the fridge don't need to reconstitute it, sterilize the site, and inject the medication, and the entire pen device then goes into the sharps container. It's that simple.
2: This is really interesting in terms of the progression of the GLP-1 agonist market. At first, you know, we just had a couple agents that were kind of more immediate release formulations, and then they went to extended release, and now they're even playing with the, the way that it's delivered to the patient. So every drug company that's iterated on the, the market is not just trying to find better efficacy, but they're focusing on things like convenience in terms of how frequently you inject and how you inject and whether you reconstitute or not. So a lot of this is more marketing and convenience for the patient as opposed to efficacy for the patient. But given that it it is an injectable product, it makes sense that those things probably matter to a patient, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, we, as a pharmacist, our main job is to make sure that the medication is being utilized the way it's supposed to, they're, they're going to get the big bang out of their buck. They're paying these insurance companies, right? So if the medication's the patient's not reconstituting it properly, they're wasting the money, but they're not getting any benefit at the same time. Whereas sterility, they have made it a little bit easier. Um, it's a kind of like a fool's proof uh, type of administration where you just have to sterilize the area and inject the medication. No need to reconstitute.
1: But at the same time, you know, we were talking about that these medications may have some better for patient specific factors, easier to administer, longer half-lives. But one thing we want to make sure is that we're not worsening outcomes, coming up with any kind of surprise ADRs. And so I think we mentioned about you got some of the GI effects, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, decreased appetite, probably due to the change in gastric emptying, constipation probably due to the same, but then we also have a little bit of fatigue, hypoglycemia, and then Maybe some interesting uh, effects on the heart.
2: So in terms of uh, changes to the conduction system of the heart, uh, we saw a very small increase in heart rate, somewhere between 2 and 4 beats per minute, or a slightly increased uh, risk of sinus tachycardia, which would be defined as greater than 15 beats per minute over baseline. And then also in prolongation of the PR interval, um, so it didn't have QTC prolongation, but we saw... Uh, prolongation of PR, which means uh, a higher risk for AV nodal blockade, so uh, different uh, heart blocks for patients.
0: Right, and then comparing to the other agents, so because you're injecting this uh, longer-acting medication... Uh, once a week, there were higher incidences of injection site reaction, if you remember the Xenotide ER or the albigotide, which is Tansium, uh, versus this medication is very interesting. They only noted about 0.5% injection site reaction. So this makes the, this drug particularly different from the other two uh, long-acting GLP-1 agonists. Um, the hypersensitivity reaction uh, is still there, just like the other agents, it's still less than 1% this drug do develop immunogenicity. So uh, we have, they found anti-drug antibodies as well as the anti-GLP, uh, anti-human GLP antibodies as well.
2: So to kind of summarize or compare and contrast other GLP ones versus this one, we see similarities with regard to uh, some of the GI side effects. Um, we see fairly similar uh, adverse reactions in terms of the risk of bad allergic reactions and things like that. But there are some unique things that the other GLP ones didn't have that this one has, right?
0: Correct, which is the injection site reaction. Um, it's only 0.5% versus up to 80, 18% with the long-acting exenatide.
2: And then also the cardiovascular changes that we saw with respect to the EKG changes in heart rate, but really no bad outcomes as a result of that. It's something that probably should deserve monitoring, though.
0: Absolutely. Um, they haven't done long-term study enough to show the you know, cardiovascular benefits like we just discussed for Jardians. Um but um, these surrogate endpoints have been noted, and they probably are doing a long-term study to prove that this medication has no cardiovascular issues or uh, harm.
1: Now, Dr. Patel, it's my understanding that there is a a black box warning with this medication for medular seat cell tumors or medular thyroid carcinomas or NTC that they saw in rats. And that as a result, they've actually said the medications contraindicated in patients with those thyroid carcinomas or any that have something called MEN2 or multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome. Now, is that something that's unique to this medication within the class or is that a class effect?
0: It's it's more so of the class effect and that's why the black box warning is there. Uh, another class effect is looking at pancreatitis. You know, none of the patients who had a history of pancreatitis were allowed to be on this medication or in the study. So we don't know what the outcomes would be. Uh, and then uh, just to keep in mind, there are no macrovascular outcomes that have been proven yet.
2: So Dr. Patel, when I think of any Basically, any diabetic medication, I think of roughly around a 1% A1C reduction, depending on the agent and things like that, but I think that's a fair mean assessment of benefit. What kind of benefit did we see in in this drug with the different clinical trials that were done?
0: So, with different uh, clinical trials that were done, you know, we, we have noticed that the longer acting GLP-1 agonists have shown a little bit more than 1% reduction in A1C, which is a good thing. And dilagotide in particular has seen anywhere between 0.7 to 1.6% reduction. And if you compare this to the other long-acting GLP-1s, um, you know, albigotide is anywhere from 0.7 to 1%, and exenotide ER is from anywhere from 08 to 1.9% reduction. So it's somewhere in between albigotide uh, and exenotide as far as the a c reduction goes. Uh, but when it comes to uh, maybe side effect profile, like injection site reaction and the ease of administration, trolicity is a little bit better than the other two agents.
2: So, what you're saying is pretty similar efficacy, but c- there's certain convenience factors that can't be captured in a clinical trial that should be applied at the patient level. Correct. So the other thing that I think about very commonly with diabetics is that oftentimes they need multiple medications, um, and ideally you want to study any given drug that's a new drug on the market. You want to study it, how you would use it in clinical practice with you know multiple different anti-diabetic therapies. So. Was this studied in more than just monotherapy for a diabetic?
0: Absolutely. So obviously they did a monotherapy trial had to head comparison with metformin, and then they also did um, add-on trials. So patients were on metformin, trilicity, and then they compared it with sitagliptin, they compared it with pioglitazone, they also compared it with uh, basal insulin, insulin glargine, to be particular. And that's where the conglomerate of a reduction between 0.7 to 1.6 percent mm-hmm. comes from.
2: So you're saying that this medication would be safe to be combined with oral. Agents and insulin.
0: Absolutely, that's correct. Um, when you when you talk about insulin, currently the trials have been done for basal insulin only, and not for the bolus.
2: So to summarize, we talked about two uh, anti-diabetic medications today. The first was empagliflozin or Jardiance, specifically with the newest New England Journal of Medicine trial that came out called empa outcome, which uh, surprisingly showed an all-cause mortality benefit and also a benefit in the primary endpoint of mortality, MI, and stroke. And even more
1: surprising, again, that it didn't have that robust A1C reduction that we were expecting.
0: Right. So we are waiting to see, you know, how this would impact the guidelines. There are other two studies in line. Um, they are going to publish their results sometimes in a couple of years, next couple of years. So it will be interesting to see how this would alter the whole world of diabetes guidelines.
1: And then as our second agent, we had trulicity or diraglutide and this is a little bit of a longer-acting formulation of our GLP-1 agonist that overall seems to maybe have a little bit more of patient compliance factors due to the long-acting, due to maybe having that kind of hidden, unexposed needle, and really a side effect profile that seems to be fairly favorable in comparison to the other agents in the class.
0: Right, and particularly that injection site reaction is more favorable, and as we look at the A and C reduction, we're getting anywhere from 0. 07 to 1.6% reduction.
2: So for those of you who haven't already left us the five-star review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners uh, discover the podcast in iTunes. Uh, if you want to visit us online, we're at helixtalk.com. With that, I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Shuman.
0: And I'm Dr. Patel. And as always, study hard. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. For more information about the show, please visit us at helixtalk.com.